If you're a parent, I'll bet at one time or another you've worried about what your child is going to be like as an adult. I think we all have. We hope that they're going to be kind and generous, happy, and so much more. One thing you definitely don't want for them to become is a criminal. Let's talk about one mom whose son became a serial rapist. And in her increasingly crazy attempts to keep him out of trouble, she became a criminal herself. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison, and I'm going to bring you another story from the world of true crime, and then we'll stop and see where it intersects with our faith and today even just common sense. Then we'll talk about what I believe is every Christian's calling, and that's to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. And we'll learn one practical way today to do that after we dive into the case. I do want to give you all a warning that today's episode deals with sexual assault. It does not get graphic, but I understand that for some people, that's just not a topic that they want to hear about. So just know that that's what we're talking about today. This is season three, episode 28. Our book this week is Sun by legendary true crime author Jack Olson. We all know that mom. The one who just won't believe that her child did anything wrong? At one time or another, we've probably all been that mom. This particular mom's name was Ruth Coe. Her son, Fred, was convicted of three rapes in and near Spokane, Washington, and suspected in over 30 others. People in Spokane talked about this series of crimes committed by an unknown assailant known as the South Hill Rapist for years. And many remember Ruth and her involvement or rather her over-involvement in her son Fred's life. In the spring of 1978, a 19-year-old woman was attacked as she walked home. That year, Spokane Records said that there had been 49 recorded rapes. In 1980, there were 127. That is a huge increase, and many had common factors. The rapist shoved his fist, which often was covered with a glove or oddly even an oven mitt, into his victim's mouths. He talked nonstop while he assaulted his victims and always warned them that if they told anyone, he would hunt them down and kill them. Most of the South Hill rapist victims had either just gotten off a city bus or were out jogging. Now, that summer of 1978 was a hopeful one for another woman, and her name was Jennifer Coe. She hoped that she might be getting back together with her ex-husband, Fred. Now, Fred hadn't told his mother Ruth yet. She wasn't a big fan of Jennifer's and had been very happy when they'd split up. Jennifer knew that this mother-son relationship lacked a lot of traditional boundaries, but she loved Fred and accepted his quirkiness. He was constantly working on tasteless novels that he was writing, the kind that traditional publishers would not touch the subject matter. He said he was planning to open a disco, but never got past the dreaming stage. He even told her once that he was going to make a fortune as a gigolo. Since he had yet to make it big in any type of business, they often left restaurants mid-dessert so they could avoid paying their bill. Jennifer had a steady job, but Fred was living off money he borrowed from his parents. Jennifer felt like maybe, since he was 31 years old, he should be a bit more independent. And Jennifer was right that Ruth was not going to be happy that she was back in her son's life. Ruth actually called Fred son rather than his actual name. Ruth and Fred spent an awful lot of time together, 
probably even more than Ruth spent with her husband, Gordon. She seemed to want to control every aspect of Son's life. Once she realized they were back together, she found out where Jennifer worked and harassed her on the phone. She reached out to Fred's best friend, Jay, and berated him for allowing Jennifer back in Son's life. Of course, Jay Williams knew that his friend was eccentric, and his mother even more so. But he was loyal to a fault, and that would come back to haunt him. Fred suddenly decided that he was going to try his hand at selling real estate. He was convinced and told his new co-workers that he would be a top-selling agent in no time. Meanwhile, the Southside rapist continued to stalk more victims. That fall, a woman walking along a busy street was grabbed by a man. She screamed and he jumped in a car and sped away. But a witness memorized his vanity license plate. It read, Disco. So, note to criminals. Don't drive a car with vanity plates on it when you're committing your crimes. Unless you really want to get caught. Of course, that plate was traced back to Fred Coe. The detective who caught the case found several rather disturbing charges from Fred's past that had been brought and then dropped. Before he could do much else... Several felony cases were assigned to him, and any investigation into what Fred may have done fell through the cracks. And the rapes continued. Even though Fred was back with Jennifer, he began seriously flirting with a woman named Jenny. He introduced himself as Kevin, which he did a lot, but, so I don't get all confused, we're just going to keep calling him Fred. Jenny knew he was seeing someone else, but she just couldn't help but feel drawn to him. He seemed to need her. Ladies, being needed feels good. But be very, very careful. It is not the same thing as being wanted. Not surprisingly, the stress of living with Fred was getting to Jennifer. He'd begun shoplifting expensive food, and she noticed that he was gone more and more, supposedly out jogging. And he seemed to have the worst luck on his runs. He was always coming back with scratches, and once he came back with a black eye. He said a dog had attacked him. Now, I don't know how many dogs punch people in the face, giving them black eyes, but Jennifer seemed to buy it, and the rapes on the South Hill continued. Fred continued to juggle his two women, and he even took Jenny to meet his parents. It seemed to go well, but Jenny's friends had been trying to warn her that they were not at all impressed with Fred. She just couldn't understand it. If someone is telling you ladies that a man in your life doesn't seem trustworthy, listen to them. They love you. They want the best for you. They've got no reason to make anything up. And they can see things that you're going to overlook or maybe even make excuses for. Jenny certainly did. And then suddenly Fred seemed to drop out of her life as fast as he'd dropped in. She wasn't really sure if she was sad or relieved or maybe even both. Police in Spokane were feeling frustrated. They weren't making much progress solving the explosion of sexual assaults happening in the South Hill area. Jennifer dealt with her bizarre relationship with Fred and his mother by drinking too much. She landed in a detox tank after a night of heavy drinking in Las Vegas. Fred came to get her, but before they left Vegas to head back to Spokane, he made her beg on the streets for money. She wanted to leave him again, but couldn't seem to bring herself to make that permanent break. Jenny also was ready, and Ruth was even seemingly on her side. And more and more and more rapes kept happening. By now, it was late fall of 1979, and Fred, despite his promise to become a top agent in his real estate firm, was a flop at yet another business. When he was let go, he refused to return his lockbox key, 
a key that would let him enter any house for sale in the area. His former boss kept pressing him on it and was surprised when he got a call from Ruth. She insisted that he stop picking on Son as she continued to call him, which is weird. Also weird, calling your adult children's employer. Ruth didn't even stop there. She called Fred's friend Jay and pressured him to intervene in Fred's complicated love life. And all the while, the South Hill rapist continued to strike. The community was understandably very nervous, but one local paper didn't even want to tarnish the city's reputation by reporting on something like a rape. That decision was made by the newspaper's managing editor, Gordon Coe. Yep, Fred's father. By early 1980, Fred had talked his way back into Jenny's life. And like Jennifer before her, Jenny noticed that Fred was gone an awful lot and would come home from jogging with fresh scratches on his hands, face, and neck. He told her he fell on some gravel and that she should just mind her own business. The couple spent a lot of time with Fred's parents, and Jenny was shocked at Ruth's wild mood swings. She once threatened her son not to ever take up with Jennifer again, or Ruth would kill her. This is probably pretty obvious to most of you, but this is not normal behavior. If someone is willing to actually say those words, they are a very, very dangerous individual not someone you want in your close circle. If you've got someone that's close to you that behaves this way, run as far and as fast as you can away from them. Jenny finally left Fred after an incident where Jennifer barged into the house where she and Fred were. But weeks later, she started to miss him. And once again, he wormed his way back into Jenny's life. If you're enjoying this episode of The Unlovely Truth, and I really hope you are, I'd love for you to visit my website, theunlovelytruth.com, and check out all the ways that you can support the podcast so that we can reach and help even more people. You can click the merch button and shop from my store, or you can join the membership site and get exclusive content. You can also simply share the show with friends that love true crime stories and appreciate the perspective of a PI and some faith. Now let's get back to this fascinatingly weird tale of a mother who would do anything to protect a rapist son. It didn't take long for problems to pop back up in Ginny and Fred's relationship. Fred was arrested for shoplifting some very expensive food at a grocery store. He'd done it before, many times, when he was with Jennifer. But Jenny, of course, didn't know that. She was sure that this all had to be just a huge misunderstanding. Fred told her that he had had business dealings with this particular store's owner before, and he was sure that the man would lie to get him into trouble. He even said that the police would lie to help this man. Fred told her that that made it okay for her to lie to save him. She refused, but he hounded her. He managed to make it sound like she was the one with the problem if she wouldn't do this one thing for the man she said she loved. Now, ladies, if you know anybody who's hearing this kind of crap from someone that says they love her, please help them see that this isn't love. It is selfish manipulation. Over time, Fred wore Jenny down, and she agreed to his plan. And women on the South Hill continued to be attacked. At Fred's trial, even Jenny's lies didn't help him. He was convicted of shoplifting and sentenced to just 72 hours of community service. 
He was furious and wrote a lengthy and only marginally coherent letter to the judge railing about the injustice of his conviction. And yet he didn't appeal the conviction or even ask for it to be expunged from his record after he completed his community service. It was sort of like he enjoyed his theater of outrage more than he cared about righting the wrong that he said had been done to him. Do you know anybody like that? Run. Fred kept up his jogging routine and kept returning home with scratches on him and tears in the heavy gloves that he wore. Spokane's other newspaper had started to report on the increasing number of rapes. They gave a composite description based on how victims had described their attacker. Jenny read it and realized that except for the height, the description fit Fred to a T. She knew her boyfriend was weird, but could he really be a rapist? She thought that she'd just turn him in anonymously, but then she was overcome with shame for even suspecting him. And the rapes continued. On January 11th, 1980, a story ran in the paper that was not edited by Gordon Coe, and it asked the dramatic question, does rape ride the bus? Reporters had noticed a pattern, but the police downplayed it. And so did Gordon Coe in a rare editorial he wrote. He basically said that rape is a problem the police just can't do much about. He encouraged the public to keep their eyes and ears open, but all the while, he had his own head buried firmly in the sand. One of the police captains assigned to the investigation actually told a television reporter that women who were being raped should just lay back and enjoy it. Let's just stop right there for a minute. I know that most of my listeners are women, but if we've got any guys listening to this episode, I hope that you are as repulsed by that comment as I am. I've never been sexually assaulted, but every woman I know lives with the concern that we're targets. In Spokane, Stores that sold mace, tear gas, and paralyzer sprays, which that one I had never even heard of. And it really doesn't sound like such a great idea in case you spray the wrong person, or maybe the attacker grabs your spray and sprays you. Anyway, these and other self-defense items were selling like crazy. Male joggers in the Spokane area were almost as afraid of local women as the women were of them. As winter began to give way to spring in early 1980, Fred's luck finally ran out. He parked by a school to hunt for a new victim, and a custodian noticed the car because it was where the buses usually pulled in. He made a mental note of the make and model, but not the license plate number. Oh, we've got it so much easier today. If you spot a car that seems out of place or seems suspicious, if you can do it safely, take a picture with your phone of that license plate. And after a woman was raped near that school, it was just a matter of time before they connected it to Fred. As police combed through registrations of cars that matched the make and model described by the custodian, they found one registered to Gordon Co. A quick-thinking officer knew that Gordon was a local bigwig, and more importantly, that he had a son. Police tracked down a picture of Fred, and a victim identified him as her attacker. And then another, and another. Now remember, this was back before DNA was used in criminal cases, and stranger-on-stranger -stranger rapes were so very hard to prove. Police decided that they would try to catch him in the act. They tailed Fred and quickly realized that the reporters had been right. Fred was following city bus routes. He also hung around shopping centers, visited high school and college hangouts, and of course, watched local jogging trails. Make sure you tell your daughters that. 
A couple of weeks later, the South Hill rapist blocked a young jogger's path and exposed himself to her. He barked at her that he wanted her to watch him, we'll just say, do things to himself. Instead, she screamed and started to chase him. She couldn't catch him, but she came across a good Samaritan who took over the chase for her. That man jumped in his car with his wife and child and took off. The flasher had parked his getaway car on a dead-end street. Not smart, Fred. The man and his wife who were giving chase were able to write down the license plate number as Fred left the scene. And soon, it was going to be time to arrest him. Even though he hadn't produced much, Fred was still working as a real estate agent. Police arrived at his office to arrest him. Of course, he denied everything and then asked for a lawyer. Other officers showed up at the house that Fred shared with Jenny, search warrant in hand. As she tried to process what was happening, Ruth Coe called and asked Jenny if the police were at the house, and if so, what were they taking? She demanded to know if Jenny was on, quote, their side. And when Jenny hesitated, Ruth screeched, son is not guilty. But of course, son was guilty, no matter what Ruth wanted to believe. And if you thought that this relationship between Ruth and Fred was a little off, well, buckle up. Weirder stuff is coming. Fred's friend Jay saw a news article about Fred's arrest in the paper, and he went with Ruth and Gordon to visit Fred in jail. As they sat off to the side, Fred wrote a note to Jay, asking him to tell the police that Fred had actually been trying to catch the South Hill rapist, and that Jay often rode along with him and was in fact with Fred, the morning of the rape that Fred was charged with. He also wanted Jay to dispose of evidence for him, which made Jay wonder how well he had ever known his childhood friend. When Jay refused to testify to Fred's wild story of them hunting the South Hill rapist together, Gordon Ruth stepped up to the plate. Gordon merely said he knew of the plan, but Ruth? Ruth said she rode shotgun. She dressed in her usual dramatic fashion for her turn on the stand, and told jurors that she and son wanted to protect the image of Spokane. So Fred would jog and she would follow in her car, mother and son looking for clues. Fred's testimony wasn't much more believable. He rambled, and when the judge would tell him that some part of his testimony was hearsay, and so it was going to be inadmissible, Ruth would sigh loudly from the gallery. Fred showed no emotion when he was found guilty of multiple rapes. He was sentenced to life plus 75 years because his sentences were going to run consecutively instead of at the same time. And that would seem to be the end of things. And with most cases, it would be. But buckle up. Even weirder stuff is coming. Ruth railed against Jay for not giving false testimony to save Son. So she decided to take matters into her own hands and hire a hitman. She wanted the prosecutor and the judge killed. Authorities had been tipped off to her little plan, and it was an undercover officer that Ruth approached to take care of her problem. She was promptly arrested, and at her trial, she used the defense that she was so overcome with emotion at what she thought was her son's wrongful conviction that she was unable to really mean or have the intent to harm anyone. Having the fake hitman testify that she told him she wanted the two men killed, or even better, left as, and these are her words, not mine, left as vegetables to be a burden on their families? Well, that didn't earn her any sympathy. Expert witnesses disagreed about whether Ruth was crazy or not, but everyone seemed to agree that at the very least, 
Ruth Coe was a bizarre woman. But being bizarre is not a legal defense to anything, and Ruth was convicted and given a suspended sentence of 20 years, with one year to be served in county jail, followed by 10 years on parole. She served her time, was paroled, and died in 1996. Fred appealed his conviction, won a retrial, and was convicted again. By 2006, he had served his time, but a civil commitment petition was filed to keep him behind bars as a sexually violent predator. As of a week ago, he remains incarcerated and actually filed a petition with the Washington Supreme Court that they read and said was without merit. His attorneys were apparently unaware that he had even filed the motion. It seems that Fred, or Kevin, or whatever he's calling himself these days, hasn't changed a bit. But what does need to change is our society's acceptance of unacceptable behavior. As terrible as all of Fred's criminal behavior was, and oh my goodness, it was, today I'm coming after Ruth for enabling him. There's so much more to their twisted relationship than I had time to share today, but to give false testimony is, in my mind, beyond the pale. If you read in the Bible from the book of Matthew, there was a time when the Pharisees and the scribes were criticizing Jesus for having followers who didn't strictly adhere to Jewish customs, especially on the point of what kinds of things defile the person. Jesus rightly called them out for the hypocrites that they were and explained that what truly defiles us is what comes out of our mouths. In the 15th chapter of Matthew, verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Did you hear me say false witness? That's exactly what Ruth Coe was. She knew she was lying, and she did it anyway for her own selfish reasons. Think about how many more women could have been victimized if her lies had led to Fred being acquitted. Now, let's be real. We've all enabled our kids in at least small things. It's hard to know sometimes where lending a hand ends up keeping them from learning to take care of themselves. Of course, we all make our own choices, especially as adults. Not trying to blame the parents of people who grow up to be criminals. But I do want to challenge all of us with some wisdom from my late mother-in-law. Kate was so loving and gentle, but also wise and strong as an oak tree. Once when my husband was a kid, a friend of his had asked him to come over and spend the night. My mother-in-law told him no. And when my husband, just like any kid would, said, well, why not? She simply said, because sometimes you just need to hear the word no. To her, it really was that simple. So this week, Let's all say no to someone in our life that needs to hear it from us. It's so healthy, and it is so lacking in our society right now. If you like this episode, be sure to check out some earlier ones. I've had so many amazing guests who have given me fantastic information that you won't want to miss. You can also help someone else begin their journey as a different kind of PI, a person of impact, when you share the episode or when you subscribe, give me a five-star rating, or a nice review. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.
Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.